Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Marie Audrey Hilly a woman in her 40s and a mother of two children, led a peaceful life as a housewife in Anniston in Alabama. However, on May 25, 1975, life turned upside down when her husband Frank died suddenly. The life insurance that he had left allowed the family to live comfortably for a short time. Problems continued to plague Murray Healy. Her youngest daughter was hospitalized. Her debts kept piling up. Creditors harassed her, not to mention the fact that doctors at the hospital strongly suspected that she had tried to poison her daughter. She fled. A few years later, in New Hampshire, Robbie Hannon, a charming woman with exquisite manners, was in a relationship with John Homan, an uncomplicated man who lived off an annuity. Robbie was adored by her colleagues, lived a high life, yet something didn't seem right about her. Quickly, she started to raise quite serious suspicions. But what if Robbie Hannon, Murray Healy, and also someone named Terry Martin were all one and the same person? Who was she trying to deceive and why? That's exactly what we will find out in today's criminal case. The story began in Anniston, a small town in Alabama. In the little township of Calhoun, rows of wooden houses lined both sides of the street, including the last house that led directly to a railway line. More than once, a child had been crushed by the powerful locomotive coming in from Atlanta. Other side of Calhoun was bordered by a chocolate-colored river, shaded by tall, watery vegetation typical of that region's almost tropical climate, where the winters was as mild as the New York springtime. This was not the most charming or the prettiest part of Calhoun, but rather a working-class neighborhood without well-manicured lawns, freshly painted fences, or shiny cars and garages with automatic doors. In this part of the town, more than one roof needed repair, more than one furnace needed to be replaced. Having a grass on the lawn was rare as it usually turned yellow from the sun and was often trampled by people passing through. At number 12 of one of these less-than-charming houses lived the Hilly family, which included parents Marie Audrey and Frank as well as their two children, Michael, Mike, and Caroline. Frank was employed as a worker in a foundry while his wife took care of the house and children. She had never worked outside the home because her husband had forbidden it after their first child was born saying he was capable of providing their every need. But when little Caroline arrived two years later and then Frank's mother came to live with them, it soon became apparent that there was not enough room or money for everyone. They were almost literally one on top of another. Yet, there was a lot of love in that family. 
The two parents were inseparable. Marie was a loving mother, devoted wife, and an excellent housekeeper. She was quite well-preserved for her age and even managed to occasionally get a few looks from men without ever arousing her husband's jealousy. Marie was also an outstanding cook who loved preparing various dishes for her family. She always had a welcoming smile, never got upset, never raised her voice, and was happy to simply flirt in a girlish voice like any other southern belle worthy of the title. Yet Mrs. Hilly was not someone who might be thought of as a beautiful woman. With her short stature, strong features, and ordinary face, she did not stand out. But her vocal inflictions were charming, her droll almost lascivious, her gesture slow and measured, her demeanor was a haughty, and her hair was always done and piled high because in the South, it was practically an unwritten rule that the hair had to be whipped up like mirroring. There was an expression that said, the higher the hair, the closer to God. Marie Audrey Fraser was born on June 4, 1933, in Birmingham and was the only child of a working-class family. She spent her childhood and youth in Blue Mountain, a town that was built around spinning cotton. When she was just 18 years old, she married Frances Hilly, her high school sweetheart, in May 1951. Their firstborn, Michael, arrived the following year, followed by a girl, Caroline, two years later. In the early 1960s, the Healy family moved to Calhoun County, where Frank's factory had provided them with housing for $50 a month. Like any good Alabama native, Marie adored dressing up, styling her hair extravagantly, wearing red nail polish and a bit too much perfume. However, chic clothing and fragrance soon became very expensive for a woman who was barely able to make ends meet. However, she was unable to resist an often used household or grocery money in order to buy herself some eyeshadow or the latest Elizabeth Arden perfumed water. Yes, it was obvious that looks were of primary importance to Mrs. Hilly. She was therefore disappointed to discover that her daughter did not seem to follow in her footsteps. Carol was a real tomboy who always hung out its scuffy jeans and dirty overalls. Her father affectionately called her my little Tom Sawyer, thereby undermining all of Marie's efforts to transform her into a proper future Scarlett O'Hara. Despite her husband's regular paycheck, Mrs. Hilly was often short of money, her own money. The kind of money that a person knows they've earned on their own. They could be spent foolishly or converted to treasury bonds. The kind of money that could give a person self-confidence and made them feel as if they had wings. Yes, that was the kind of money that Marie lacked. At almost 40 years old, she did not have a credit card or a checkbook or even an account in her own name, and this was a terrible financial hardship. I'd like to open a bank account, she said to her husband one day. What for? asked her surprised husband as he finished his coffee. We don't want anything and the kids have everything they need. I make enough pay for everything you need. Besides, what would you deposit into your account? I don't know, maybe some savings, she guessed. What do you think I am, a millionaire? But since you brought it up, Frank said changing his tone, I didn't tell you this before, I just took out a life insurance policy for $31,000 and... Uh, $31,000? That much? A life insurance policy? Did Frank have any idea what an amount like that could buy? How many dresses, pairs of shoes, and trips to the hairdressers and restaurant dinners were that represented? No, it was obvious that he did not. In case in ice stress, in case something bad happens to me, neither you nor the kids will ever have to go begging. Asking handouts from others was a good one. Murray thought to herself, he knows full well that I would never go scrounging for food off anybody, not even from the poor house. Why does he always belittle me like that? Marie, are you still listening to me? Yeah, yeah. So then the matter is settled. Yes, of course, darling, she said, kissing him. 
but I would never want you to go before me because no life insurance policy would ever be enough to ease my poor broken heart. Murray Hilly had noticed him between the rows of potatoes and berries. At first, it was a wink, then another honest lie. He certainly had some nerve. He was punchy, had graying hair, and was practically a grandfather. At the cash register, as she took out her wallet, the gray-haired man politely asked if he could help her with her bags. I don't live far from here. Thank you. She smiled and he smiled back, and their eyes met. They said goodbyes to each other in the parking lot. Marie noted that his suit must have costed a lot of money. This extramarital affair, the first time she had done anything like that in her routine and monotonous life, continued for several weeks in a seedy hotel room that her lover rented every week specifically for their tryst. Right now from the start, the mother of the two started to put out a price tag on their romantic excursions. The well-behaved housewife, who up until then had only known her husband Frank's awkward kisses and snoring every night for almost the past two decades, had started to lie and find excuses for a stay out as long as possible. The pot-bellied, graying grandfather was called Joseph Larty and worked as an assistant manager for a concrete manufacturer. He soon provided to be an insatiable and demanding lover. Soon the $40 spent each time was not enough for Mrs. Healy, who always needed more. Sometimes her lover offered a bauble, a necklace, a pair of high heels, a gold-bladed watch, or a pair of gloves that were impractical for Alabama's semi-tropical climate. They were gifts for a prostitute. Murray repeatedly threw them in his face and would cause a terrible scene by demanding a diamond or at least a string of pearls. To encourage Joseph to be a bit more generous and to loosen his purse strings, Marie began trying to make him jealous by claiming that he tried too quick and that she could easily find another lover who was much younger and better looking than he was. Perhaps as a result of her careful direct criticism, which wounded her partner's ego, she often went home with close to $100 hidden in the bottom of her brassiere, a smile on her lips and the radiant look of someone who had just won the jackpot. But the pretense didn't last very long and Frank himself discovered the deception. Instead of finding a gun and shooting his rival, he settled for punching him in the face before sitting Murray in the passenger seat of his car and driving back home in a deadly silence. The extramarital affair was never mentioned again in the Hilly household, but Marie had no intention of stopping there, now that she had experienced how profitable it could be. As discreetly as possible, she then set her sights on her husband's boss, but this time around, she demanded to be paid regularly for her sexual favors. Although Frank never caught on to the affair, Marie was still abandoned by her lover, who became infatuated with another who was prettier and much younger than she was. But that was not a problem for her. She knew that she could always try again. That was how she came to focus on Roger Hill, a technician who specialized in electric cables that she ran into a supermarket parking lot. The affair was short-lived because Roger had recently gotten married and feared of being discovered. In terms of money, he really didn't have much to offer her. Marie decided to put an end to her interlude, which, although certainly brief, was rather intense because Roger was an extremely sensual man. So then, what did she do with the money she earned from her adventures? She spent it completely on clothes, shoes, perfumes, purses, hats, and makeup. To see Marie Hilly prancing around in more than 30 degrees heat, wearing a velour hat, waddling down the lane that separated the main street, provoked both curiosity and dismay. Her style was totally incompatible with the environment in which she lived and many of her neighbors wondered from where she acquired her fortune. It certainly wasn't from her poor husband's modest paycheck. In early May 1975, Frank Hilly woke one morning and headed straight to the bathroom to vomit. He did not go to work and throughout the day, his condition did not improve. 
Marie watched over Frank the entire night, trying to feed him spoonfuls of chicken broth which he immediately spilled on his pajamas before throwing up even more. He was admitted to Aniston General Hospital the next day where despite administering blood tests, doctors were unable to detect anything wrong with him. He was sent back home the same day in a wheelchair which Marie pushed mournfully. Frank was visibly wasting away, constantly experiencing excruciating stomach pains and terrible spasms. The pain was something so intense it made him scream all night, keeping the entire household awake. At such times, Marie played nursemaid by mopping his brow, administering morphine injections, and forcing him to swallow antispasmodics, but Frank was simply unable to even swallow anything. Even the sight of water was enough to make him sick. On some days, he was outright delirious and spoke to himself aloud and waved his finger at the ceiling of his room. During his umpteenth return to the hospital, he was weak, emaciated, and unable to speak. He was eventually diagnosed with a form of acute stomach hepatitis. Against his doctor's advice, Murray decided to bring him back home. Frank did not look so well anymore. His face was gone, his complexion had turned pale yellow, and his eyes had become hollow and lifeless. He had become almost completely dependent, unable to make even the slightest movement without help from his wife or daughter. On May 25, 1975, Frank Hilly was found dead in his bed, struck down by his hepatitis. The funeral took place sadly under a sky that was far too cloudy and gray for the month of May. Wearing the dark cloth of a widow and with her face covered by chiffon veil, Murray Hilly was sorrow personified, crying for the man with whom she had lived for over 20 years. By her side, her children Michael and Carol had held her hand. They were the very image of a united family who had to face life's ups and downs after the loss of their sole provider. After the mourning period was over, Murray Hilly started to become concerned with more practical matters. Although she did not have a job, she now had to assume the household responsibilities and pay the bills. At the top of the list were the bills her late husband incurred during his frequent stays in the hospital. And then one day, Mrs. Hilly received a call early in the morning. It was the insurance company. How could she have forgotten? The insurance policy valued at $31,000 and registered in the name of Murray Hilly was paid to her in full by check backed by the signature of the company's director. She had to pinch herself several times to convince herself that she wasn't dreaming. No, she wasn't dreaming. The money now belonged to her. Before going back home, Murray stopped off at the bank where she opened an account. A week later, the bank gave her a checkbook with her first gold master card with her name and account number. She withdrew $1,000 and headed for the closest shopping center. When she got back home, her face was red with excitement, but now she had to deal with the inquisitive stares of her neighbors sitting on the front porches who were shocked to see so many packages and boxes being removed from the trunk of Frank Hilly's widow's car. They can all go to hell. Nobody gave me a thing. This is my money. In the days that followed, Marie went to a car dealership and bought herself a red convertible that she paid for in cash, refusing the terms offered by the salesperson out of pride. Why do something small when you can go for big? Almost every day, all she did was shop, 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 and then shop some more. Marie was riding on a cloud. Even her daughter started lecturing her about her frivolous purchases. Papa worked so hard so that we could go enjoy the finer things, don't you think? And besides, tomorrow we have to go pick out a dress for your prom. But Mama, the prom isn't for another two months. Now, now, that's the end of it. You'll come with me tomorrow to the shopping center and we'll both pick out something pretty for the prettiest of the princess. As usual, Caroline was unable to respond. She was a modest, quiet, and a shy girl who was often overwhelmed by her mother's extravagant and domineering personality. As planned, the next day, mother and daughter went to a boutique specializing in evening wear. 
re-impeccably dressed, with her legs elegantly crossed, acted as if she ran the entire store. She spoke in an authoritative tone and gave orders left and right. No sooner had Caroline picked out a dress that she liked than her mother immediately expressed disapproval. White? Oh, come on, Caroline. Honey, you're not going to First Communion. What? Petrol green? Really, sweetie, can't you see how hideous and gloomy it is for a prom? No, no, that midnight blue is absolutely out of the question. That's too matronly. It makes you look like a wife of the President Heisenhower. Then she started berating the salesgirl. You there, miss. Come help my silly daughter pick something out. I think she has rather good taste, Mrs. Hilly. And Marie rose impatiently to her feet. She began digging through the shelves and pulled out a sickening candy pink satin dress with lacy sleeves on the same color. She held it out of Caroline. Here's one. Try this one on. Looking desperately at the sales girl, the young girl complied and entered the changing room as her mother sat down on a chair, lit a cigarette, and waited for a chance to give her an opinion. Despite everything, Caroline did manage to leave with the dress of her choice along with a handbag and a pair of high-heeled shoes selected by Marie this time in the tawdriest shade of gold imaginable. As Marie continued her compulsive spending, her finances started to dwindle. The statements she received from the bank were a reminder that the show had gone on for long enough and that if she didn't want to find herself the red, she had better start tightening her belt. But Marie was quite simply unable to control herself. On the evening of the prom, Caroline, adorned with a tiara and wearing the midnight blue dress that she had selected two months earlier, sat in the kitchen to wait for Billy, her date for the night. The two young people were about to leave when Marie called out to her daughter. Wait just a moment, my beauty. You absolutely have to try my anti-hangover soup. Caroline blushed beneath her makeup and avoided looking at Billy, who was also feeling uncomfortable in his tuxedo. Oh, come on, mom. There's not going to be any alcohol at the party, I promise you. There'll be others, young lady. I've been to high school proms before and I can tell you that the punches we were served didn't have any soda in it. So now be a good girl and let me serve you a bowl of my potion. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You'll thank me tomorrow morning when you wake up. <laughs> Unless, of course, Billy changes his mind and doesn't take you anywhere. Mother! And so while Billy sat and waited in the car, Caroline, with a white napkin knotted around her neck and sat down at the table before the steaming bowl of thick brownish soup, she hesitated for a moment then, plunged her spoon, swallowed and grimaced, but her mother insisted that she finish it all. Within an hour of the evening began, Caroline started to feel ill and turned down all of Billy's pleas to join the others on the dance floor. She made several trips back and forth to the bathroom to vomit. She couldn't stay any longer and was taken back home, almost unconscious. While she was in the hospital in August 1979, Caroline Hill was visited daily by her mother who always gave her an injection. However, instead of improving her condition, worsened with each passing day. The remainder of her convalescence was spent at home. For a while, she regained a bit of an appetite and ate everything that her mother prepared for her on a tray. But soon her nausea returned even stronger than before and once more she was admitted to the intensive care unit. 
During the whole ordeal, her mother never left her side for a moment, berating the medical staff and the doctors who treated her sick daughter. One day while Caroline was being placed on a stretcher to change her room, she was approached by a young intern who stopped to ask how she was doing. The young girl did not even have the strength to return his greeting and could only manage to shake her head. It was then that he took her by the hand and glanced at her blue streak fingernails and appeared worried. At that moment, Murray Healy had just arrived with a bag filled with a change of clothes for her daughter when she noticed the doctors consulting with each other in hushed tones. Arsenic poisoning. We'll have to do some tests, just to be sure. Shortly after, Murray Healy was approached by the intern. The amount of poison found in your daughter's blood test was enough to knock out a horse, Mrs. Healy. It's a miracle that she's still alive. Caroline then had her stomach pumped and remained in intensive care for another week. The police came down shortly thereafter and began to ask her questions. Yes, it was mother who always gave me my injections. I always vomited afterwards. I felt nauseated after every meal. Yes, she insisted on giving me injections herself. When Marie was questioned, she denied everything completely. But after several retractions, she eventually admitted to having injected her daughter with a drug called Phenergan, a powerful anti-emetic. Aniston Police Lieutenant Greg Carroll didn't believe her for a single minute. It was a cloudy liquid, recalled Caroline Hill. Sometimes I took it orally and it had the taste of bitter almonds. Precisely, arsenic had a particular almond taste. It was odorless and colorless and could be added to food without changing its texture or color. Symptoms of arsenic poisoning were obvious. Intermittent nausea, body aches, fever and a feeling of heaviness and numbness, diarrhea and withering stiffness of the joints. In short, the symptoms were everything that Caroline Hill was suffering and, astonishingly, her father too, well before his tragic death a few years earlier. Soon I'll be practically helpless. I'll need to have someone to help me dress. Of course, my mother is always with me. She's worried about me. The Hillies house was searched. When the police entered Marie's room, they came across wardrobes overflowing with new clothes, shoe boxes, and a vanity laden with perfumes and deluxe beauty products. It was a bit excessive for a widow without employment or any regular source of income. Lieutenant Greg Carroll had no intention of giving up. At that point, he definitely suspected Marie of having tried to kill her daughter. His suspicions turned out to be true when he discovered that she was on the list of beneficiaries of her daughter's life insurance, which was close to $25,000. The scandal erupted, and soon all of Aniston discovered the plans of the widow Hilly to claim her poor daughter's legacy. Out on bail for premeditated attempted murder, Murray was taken to the town of Birmingham by her lawyer in hopes of helping her avoid a media lynching. That very same evening, while she was under house arrest in a city hotel, she secretly slipped away, stole a car, left Alabama, and disappeared into thin air. The stolen car was later found by police in Marietta, Georgia, but there was not a trace of Marie Healy in the vicinity. Over the next few weeks, the police searched every entrance and exit into the state for fugitive and even offered a reward to anyone who may have seen her, but their efforts proved fruitless. Marie Hilly had completely vanished without a trace. Fort Lauderdale, October 1979. That's all, thanks. Sitting before a plate of fried eggs, bacon, and a cup of coffee, Robbie Hen smiled as she watched the white yachts moored in the marina. How wonderful it would be to own one of these crafts, the very image of luxury and idleness. She sighed, poked her fork into the egg yolk, and crumbled the crispy bacon so she could eat it with her fingers. She glanced at the young waiter who had been watching her earlier, but he did not look back. Robbie Hannon was a woman in her 40s. She was short, stocky, and her chestnut brown hair was also short and puffed out in a permanent. After her breakfast, she walked along the promenade and glanced enviously at the white boats docked for the season. 
She imagined the luxurious cabins, the glasses of champagne, and the little caviar sandwiches. Hello, you. Before her was a man in his fifties with a receding hairline, gray beard, and doe eyes. He glanced at her sideways as she probably much too shy to approach her more directly. Robbie gave him her best smile. And hello to you, too. Pardon me for saying this, but I've been watching you for a while as you walked along the wharf. I own one of these yachts. If you'd like, I could show you around. Why, that would be wonderful. Your accent isn't from around here. I'm from Dallas. Ah, Texas, that explains everything. Give me your hand gently. Here we are. I'm Robbie Hannon, and you? My name is John Homan. I'm delighted to meet you. For Robbie Hannon and John Homan, a boat builder, it was love at first sight. That very evening, they consummated their relationship, and they were soon married. It was a passionate marriage between the two young, but lonely people. John didn't work and lived off his pension. He spent money freely, gave gifts all over the place, and was a real sex machine. He was everything that Robbie Hannon was looking for, and she, too, was very fond of her husband, who was so gentle and tender. Sex became a currency of exchange for his lascivious woman and an effective way to subjugate her husband and get everything she wanted. In November 1981, the couple left Florida and moved to Marlowe, New Hampshire, in the northwest of the country. Robbie insisted on finding herself a job even though John assured her that he had more than enough means for both of them. Following a brief interview, she was eventually hired as a customer service representative in a screw manufacturing plant called Central Fasteners & Co. in the neighboring town of Clean. She was friendly, cheerful, effervescent, charming, and was also an excellent worker. Mrs. Hoffman soon won over all her co-workers, including the sour redhead Bridget Kennedy, who was a chief accountant for the sales department. Robbie Hoffman took care of everything. She organized business dinners, organized collection pools for birthday gifts, as well as for welcome and send-off parties. Everywhere she walked, she left a scent of her perfume and made the offices resonate with her singing and her seductive southern accent. Being rich was of primary importance to her. Recalled one of her colleagues, Robbie hungered for social status. She was always one of the first to go to the bank on paydays. As for her marriage, it was clear that she was the one who wore the pants in the family. At that point, John Homan also had to endure her frequent mood swings, depressive episodes, and her rejections. Lately, she even balked at sleeping in the same bed with him. True to his nature, John gave in and immediately bought her an expensive gift in the hopes that it might make her more receptive and help him regain his marital privileges. He also shared her desire to have children, but she refused claiming that she was already premenopausal, which was not a lie. In 1982, Robbie told her husband she had contracted a rare form of leukemia and that her physician informed her that she didn't have long to live. In August, she left New Hampshire to go back home to Texas to say goodbye to her parents and to an alleged twin sister named Terry. John insisted on traveling with her, but she refused. She kissed him and asked him to be strong, but not to try to contact her because she wanted to leave in peace without suffering or remorse. He accepted. Their goodbyes were heartbreaking. In November 1982, John Homan received a telephone call from Texas. On the other end of the line, a woman announced that she was Terry, the twin sister of his beloved wife, Robbie. John was absolutely stunned. Briefly, Terry explained to him the details of her twin sister's death following complications from her leukemia and expressed his desire to come and see him in New Hampshire. A date was set. Waiting in front of the domestic arrivals gate at Boston Airport, John saw an exact double of his late wife approaching him. She, however, was much thinner, had peroxide-colored hair, and wore a tight-fitting jeans suit and white high-heeled cowboy boots. Terry Martin the newcomer moved into her late sister's house and John welcomed her with his usual care and attentiveness 
and took her out to eat in restaurants. Soon Terry mentioned that she might like to move to New Hampshire because, in her opinion, the climate was much more favorable than Texas heatwaves. John offered to put her up for as long as she wanted. She thanked him by kissing him innocently on his mouth. In no time at all, Terry eclipsed Robbie, and soon she even replaced her in John's heart. She found a job working in a bookstore in Brattleboro in Vermont, and soon she began charming everyone just as her sister before her had done. One day, she asked John to take her to the Central Easterner and Co. so that she could meet her sister's former co-workers. They arrived just as the employees were having lunch. Immediately, she caused quite a sensation, but also a bit of discomfort. In the cafeteria, Robbie's co-workers were literally awestruck and many of them dropped their forks and spoons into their plates. It was incredible. It was impossible. They were the spitting image of each other. Everyone was there standing about a cry as they spoke about Robbie. While Terry had a smile, a caress, and a hug for each of us. Then she wanted to see Robbie's office and sat down in her chair. Keene was a quiet town where everyone meddled in everyone else's business. But the sight of this vibrant woman with dyed blonde hair parading around every day on the arm of her brother-in-law began to raise serious suspicions. It was as if Terry Martin wanted to persuade people by any measure that she was the deceased twin sister, but it seemed as if she was trying too hard and her efforts eventually had the opposite effect. In fact, one day, during one of her visits to Central Fasteners, the chief accountant Bridget Kennedy made a point of telling her exasperatedly, Robbie, stop fooling around. I know full well that it's you. You might have succeeded in deceiving poor John, but you should know that we're not dupes. Undaunted and with a smile, Terry replied, Oh, come on now, Bridget. I'm Terry. My sister is dead, and you know that as well as I do. Oh, please, Bridget, don't look at me like that. I know that you liked her a lot. Come here and give me a hug. When the two women embraced, it was fanged and frigid. Terry would never return to the factory for the fear that her charade would eventually be discovered. But that wasn't the end of it for Robbie's co-workers. People began to whisper about the story of the fake twins throughout the whole company. Many of them, who had initially been deceived, started noticing the actress' irregularities and mistakes. The manager, Frank Oha, even made telephone inquiries and called specialized hospitals and clinics all over Texas. They were all quite explicit. There was no record of any woman with the name Robbie Homan anywhere. It was the same situation with the medical file that she had provided when she was hired. It would prove to be fake as well as her identification and her driver's license. The twin Robbie Hannon and Terry Martin never existed. Frank Oha finally called the police. The police, who suspected that they were dealing with the fugitive on the run, eventually approached Terry in the parking lot of the Brook Press bookstore where she worked. At first, she flashed them her best smile, but then they blocked her way. Who are you really? Removing her huge sunglasses, Terry Martin remained silent for a moment before she declared without battling an eyelid. My name is Marie Audrey Hilly. From then on, things began to move quickly and all the pieces started to fall into place. When the police in Alabama were contacted, law enforcement in Keene, New Hampshire discovered, to their shock and surprise, the whole scam. They learned that Murray Hilly had first been arrested in 1979 for the attempted murder of her own daughter. They also found out that in the 1980s, a mere two months after her escape, she had been found guilty of the murder of her husband Frank Healy, whose cause of death was officially due to hepatitis and whose body had been exhumed when Marie was on the run. The coroners had found several traces of heavy metals and arsenic in his internal membranes. For four years, Murray had been in hiding, using an abusing subterfuge and some shrewd lies. She had the ability to blend into the background, transform herself into someone else, and attract sympathy, if not love and friendship from the people she met. To play the role of Terry Martin, 
and to deceive those around her, she even lost more than 20 kilos, dyeing her hair, drastically changed her looks and her lifestyle habits. Marie Healy, alias Robbie Hannon, alias Terry Martin, was careful to pay attention to the smallest details of the role that she was currently playing. If Robbie Hannon loved to smoke Lucky Strike cigarettes and constantly read books, then Terry preferred to smoke Marlboro Mentals, never cracked open a book, and often watched TV. After her latest statements to the police in Keene, Marie was taken back to Anniston, Alabama, where she was charged with the premeditated murder of her first husband, Frank, and sentenced to life imprisonment with an additional sentence of 20 years for the attempted murder of her daughter, Caroline Hilly. During the trial, she had only testified once and refuted the statements that she had made to agent Gary Carroll about the injections she had given to her daughter. The latter had refused to see her mother and was not in any condition to take part in the trial. As a result of the heavy doses of the arsenic that had been administered to her, Caroline had lost the use of her legs and had to get around in a wheelchair. The assistant district attorney of Calhoun County, Joe Hobart, stated that Marie Hilly had killed only for money. First, it was Frank for his life insurance, then there was a failed attempt with her daughter for the same shameful motive. Joe Hubert also said she wanted a high-end lifestyle, to be able to indulge in everything she wanted without worrying about money. Yet Frank Hilly was just a simple worker and there was no doubt that his disturbed woman only thought of him as an obstacle to her ambitions and therefore decided to get rid of him. Incarcerated at the Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women in Alabama, Marie quickly became a model prisoner. She was so well-behaved that she was granted more privileges than the other detainees. In February 1987, she received a phone call from John Hahnman, who wanted to see her in the hopes of possibly finding some traces of his fictitious spouse. She accepted his invitation. On February 23, she enjoyed a two-day weekend authorized by the prison to go and join her former husband and lover in the motel just outside of Birmingham. John, more in love than ever, forgave her for everything. Marie fell into his arms and they spent the night together. The next day upon returning from an errand, John found the room deserted and Marie had escaped once more. Over the period of February 25 and 26, 1987, a storm was announced for the area. Barbara Neal Thompson, a resident of the area, was sitting in front of her TV when she heard scratching noises on the front door of her house. When she went to see what was going on, she came face to face with Marie Healy, soaked and crawling in the backyard. Barbara Thompson let out a scream to wake her neighbors. Marie disappeared yet again. She was eventually found dead by the side of the railroad tracks on February 26, 1987, and it was likely that she died as a result of hypothermia. Her body was covered in mud and her hands and feet had turned purple. Nevertheless, there were no signs of violence. Why hadn't she sought a shelter from the rain? Did she willingly want to die? It was a great mystery. One thing was for sure, her escape was ill-conceived and perhaps not even planned at all. Her final flight from justice was now over. She was buried right beside the husband she had murdered 12 years earlier in a cemetery in Colhoun. That was how the unique and dramatic story of the Black Widow of Aniston came to an end. It was one of the most shocking cases in the state of Alabama in the 1980s, where for the first time a woman as seemingly innocent as Marie Healy had committed the unforgivable. Money, the recurring motive in the case, had been the catalyst for the whole vicious charade orchestrated by a simple housewife who everyone believed was incapable of doing harm, especially to the members of her own family. Murray Healy had spent all of her husband's life insurance money on clothes, baubles, and shoes. During her trial, many return checks she had signed re-emerged. Police Lieutenant Gary Carroll, devastated by Caroline's disabled condition, decided to take responsibility for her and took her home to live with him and his family. We're at the end of our show for today. 
So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.